Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. Today's episode, I'm really, really excited about today's guest. Um, I've been following Roger Dooley for a number of years. Um, I think he's one of the preeminent thought leaders in the field of neuromarketing. He has a unique ability, a superpower, some might say, at taking complicated neuro, almost academic terms and concepts and turning them around and and giving them to those of us in the business world in a way that we can actually understand and apply. Uh, Roger's been doing this work for over 15 years. He's an author. He's written Brainfluence, which is an awesome book. If you have not read it yet, I encourage you to go get it. Uh, go, to, go to neurosciencemarketing.com and you can consume a ton of, of Roger's great work. And you can also go over to rogerdooley.com. And today we're really going to feature Roger's brand new book, Friction. And when it comes to driving change and when it comes to how people make decisions to change or resist change, how businesses and institutions can either identify opportunities to change, uh, this book really, really spoke to me, Roger. And so it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for joining. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. And I think we can come up with some uh, really interesting and helpful concepts uh, for our audience. Great. So this book, Friction, first of all, I have to say, Um, I like to think that one of my superpowers is creativity. I love to be creative and I love to think differently. And I have to give you a lot of credit because taking a concept that's, you know, several millennia old, which is the idea of change, and then figuring out a way to creatively put it into a narrative that everybody can understand and then call it something interesting um, by taking this term friction is genius. So kudos to you for that. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I did not invent friction, uh, but uh, hopefully you've uh, put a little uh, different spin on the use of the term. And isn't that, isn't that really what it is, right? Because Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, but when you take something that's been around forever and you put it into a concept that's easy to consume and understand, guess what happens? It reduces friction. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, I'll throw one little factoid for you. Actually, the concept of friction in the physical world, physical friction, uh, uh, isn't all that old. Uh, it wasn't until about 500 years ago that da Vinci began running some experiments uh, that and actually came up with some uh, data. He had a very sophisticated apparatus and found what the scientists call today the coefficient of friction. Uh, but uh, his work was lost for a few centuries, and it wasn't until a couple of hundred years later when another scientist finally uh, did the work. So uh, friction is kind of like gravity. You know, we know it's there, but we can't really see it. We can see its effects. You know, if you ever uh, slid down a rope with your hands, uh, you know that uh, that friction can uh, <laughs> cause some heat and some damage, uh, but uh, you, you can't really see the force in the same way that, you know, that an apple falls to the ground, but you can't see gravity acting on it per se. Right. No, that's, I love that analogy. And um, I think our listeners today probably can start to already think about the various ways in their life and in the world, whether it's in a personal life or professional life, where this unseen force called friction might be causing them to not actually be able to accomplish the things that they're, they're setting out to, to accomplish. And one of the areas that I loved your concept in the book, in chapter five, you talk about the science of friction. And, and you and I have some mutual heroes in this field 
of cognitive bias in, in the neuro world, and Daniel Kahneman and B.J. Fogg and Richard Thaler are three of them, and you, you cite that their work and others helped you come up with this fundamental law of friction. So tell us about that. Right. Well, basically, uh, there is different ways of stating it, but uh, when you reduce friction, you get uh, more action, uh, and that underlies just about everything in the book. Uh, and there are various converse. The converse of that is true, too. If you increase friction, you will get less of something. Uh, it will be less action. Uh, and, you know, it seems like a simple and even obvious concept, uh, for starters. I mean, just uh, uh, I've had uh, a couple people say, well, everybody knows about friction. Uh, gee, you, know, you know, you want to write a whole book about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, in fact, uh, every day in our lives we encounter so much of it, we often aren't aware of it as such. Uh, but uh, just like physical friction, it's everywhere, and uh, the world could be a better place, and definitely people's uh, lives and businesses could be better uh, if they become become a little bit more friction aware and uh, use that to their advantage. Uh, you know, typically it might be reducing friction if you're a business and trying to sell stuff, for example, or trying to get people to give you their uh, contact information. Uh, their friction reduction is just about always a good thing. You know, on the other hand, if you were trying to break a bad habit, sometimes increasing friction can be helpful. Interesting. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about um, one of my colleagues here at Brain Trust is finishing up his PhD work. And, and we, we've coined this phrase called self-preservation orientation. And the idea, obviously, with all the research, but just it's intuitive that all of us as human beings are biologically wired towards self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading your book, it kept coming back to me over and over again that this idea of, of friction, particularly um, in the resistance to change because of my own self-preservation and because we don't always see the way, to, the way forward, we like, to, we like to grow back to what we call our safety boxes quickly, which is status quo. And that friction mm-hmm. can cause us almost like rubber band effect right back to where our safest last point of, <laughs> in our mind, less friction existed, right? Right. And, you know, I think... Um uh, if you look at uh, what some evolutionary psychologists talk about, uh, uh, you can tie uh, the concepts in brain influence and friction together because um, the uh, you know some of the fundamental concepts of, from evolutionary psychology are that we're trying to as you know preserve ourselves, preserve our DNA, and that affects uh, everything from our relationships. Uh, and uh, Dan Ariely, uh, another famous name uh, that I'm sure uh, you're a fan of as well. I uh, talked about uh, the power of the word free and how it has an outsized effect on our brain. So that, uh, you know, for us today, uh, one cent and free are economically identical. Uh, a one penny has no economic meaning to you or me or any of our listeners. Right. Uh, but but uh, that, uh, despite that, has this uh, power over our brains that when something is free, suddenly we're much more tempted by it than if it was just, say, one cent. Uh, and I think that that might relate back to evolutionary psychology in sort of those hunter-gatherer days, where if you're walking along a path and suddenly there's a big piece of fruit hanging right in front of you that even though you were not hungry, uh, you had to exert zero effort to get it, uh, then uh, that would uh, you, you would probably take that. Even if you didn't consume it at that moment, uh, you, would, you would grab it. Uh, and to me, that is kind of a frictionless experience. Uh, uh, it's a zero effort experience, so you take advantage of it. Yeah, that's great. Isn't it, how, isn't it interesting how all this 
it pairs together. So when you talk about a lot of Kahneman's work and prospect theory and the loss aversion, and then use that example that you just gave. And if I'm walking along the Serengeti and I look up and there's a piece of fruit hanging right in front of my face, I'll grab it even if I'm not hungry. Um, and, and the levels or degrees of my hunger will dictate my willingness to embrace friction in order to absolve that hunger, right? So if the fruit was 30 feet up within a very thick tree covered in spiny needles, that's a lot of friction. Right, exactly. And, so, and we'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. This is what B.J. Falk found, right? And his, his model was that the motivation over the ability really does help us quantify and measure the amount of friction we're willing to bear in order to get that fruit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just to sort of recap uh, Fogg's ideas, uh, he says you need three things to create a behavior or change a behavior. Uh, you need motivation. The person has to want to do that or want the result of doing it. Uh, there has to be uh, a nudge or a trigger or a prompt. He calls it prompt now, something to just sort of get things moving. And then finally, there has to be ability, which is lack of difficulty. So comparing the fruit that's uh, hanging right in front of your face uh, to the fruit that's at the top of the spiny tree, uh, the second one is very low ability, and the odds of somebody trying to uh, get that fruit are very low compared to uh, the one that's easy. And so uh, Fogg says, uh, don't focus on motivating people to do stuff. Focus on making that easier. And Richard Thaler, a Nobel laureate, uh, says pretty much the same thing. He says, uh, if you want people to do something, make it easier. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it seems like such a simple concept, but uh, I uh, corresponded with him a little bit, and I was fortunate enough that he endorsed my book, and he, uh, I sense his frustration uh, where uh, governments and businesses will call him in for advice, no doubt at great cost to them. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, he says, well, okay, yeah, I can help you. Uh, what you want to do is make this process easier. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, but they don't. <laughs> right. like, you just, uh, you know, hired one of the world's most renowned economists uh, at great expense to tell you what to do. Uh, and then, oh, well, uh, you know, making it easier, that's not really an option. Or that, would be, that would be difficult to make it easier. Uh, and it's... Uh, uh, it's frustrating. Well, taking a project led by the government and saying that you're going to make that easier, that's almost an oxymoron, right? You just, it's, a, it's almost a, it's an impossibility, I think. So. Well, no, it's uh, not entirely. There are people uh, in the government uh, who are working in that direction. Uh, my friend Matt Cutts, who used to be at Google, he was one of the very early Google employees and for a while was in charge of their uh, anti-spam effort. Uh, uh, he has been working for the government in a very senior uh, technology director position. And a lot of what they're focused on is taking the work out of processes that citizens have to go through. Uh, but of course, I mean, there's so, so many processes and there are a lot of them that they can't necessarily impact. They can't rewrite the tax code, for example, uh, which is a prime example of very high friction. Right. Uh, in the U.S., um, nine out of 10 people doing their taxes either uh, use software or go to a professional prepare uh, because it is so uh, difficult, so effortful and confusing to try and use uh, the mere forms and instructions that the government gives you. Yeah, and if you don't do it right, then that increases even more the friction from the IRS, right? <laughs> they give a well, different they'll, they'll be on your case if you don't. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's take this example then as we're, as we're walking along that, that path on the, on the Serengeti, and I want to bridge this into another question that's in your book. And so if we use that example and we use uh, B.J. Fogg's uh, behavioral model, and we say, okay, so uh, in, in an existing industry, when you're walking across, you look up and the, the fruit's 30 feet up the tree and it's covered in spiny needles, 
then a really smart business person would recognize that if they can figure out a way to go get the fruit out the top of that tree and bring it down in, in high volume and put it in baskets and sell it along the side of the road, they will have removed the friction and, and, and altered that entire industry, right? So, so when you talk about um, a good example, I think, is Amazon. And you talk about the friction evangelist in chapter one. Um, give us some color around your thoughts around Amazon and how they've essentially mastered BJ Fogg's change activation model, if you will, or human behavior model. Right. Well, the uh, person I uh, nicknamed the friction evangelist is Kintan Brambad, who's actually uh, relatively new uh, with Amazon. That doesn't go all the way back to the early days when they were just booksellers. Uh, but he has been, uh, to some degree, on the lecture circuit uh, telling people, uh, giving them some lessons from what Amazon has done to prosper by reducing friction. And uh, probably it begins with Jeff Bezos, uh, as far back as 1997, he was talking about frictionless shopping. Uh, at that moment, uh, a lot of people were just trying to figure out what e-commerce was and whether it was worth doing. Uh, right. And he had already determined that the way to do it was to uh, make it frictionless. Uh, the year after that, they patented one-click ordering. And uh, it, uh, a lot of it, the patent was dismissed by many companies at the time. I remember reading about it. It's like, oh, you can't patent that. To, you know, just clicking a button to order something. Everybody's got a, you know, some kind of an order button. Uh, but the way they did it was uh, that it would use all the customer's stored information and their stored preferences for shipment and so on and so on. Uh, and with one click, uh, they needed no additional information, and the product would be on the customer's doorstep uh, after some short period of time. And, uh, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble said, well, well, we can do that, too. And they did it. Uh, and then they got into a legal battle with Amazon, and Amazon spent tons of money uh, to defend their patent, uh, and uh, eventually they prevailed. But now, now think about this, Jeff. Uh, just one tiny little click, okay, that is all they gained by spending perhaps millions of dollars to defend that patent against, well, Barnes & Noble and uh, everybody else who might have used it, the only advantage was saving their customers one tiny little click. What Barnes & Noble ended up doing was adding a confirm order button. So you had your buy now button, and then they said confirm buy or something after that. Uh, so two clicks. And, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and you think about when we put our customers through you know, that one tiny little click, we wouldn't even think about as being an important part of the overall effort when we're asking to fill out forms and go through multiple screens and answer uh, surveys that have, uh, you know, uh, 50 questions and all this stuff. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos saw how important that was uh, and vowed to defend it to, uh, to the death pretty much, and they prevailed. Now, one other really smart person uh, at that same exact moment saw one-click ordering, um, and that was... Uh, Apple's Steve Jobs, they were getting ready to launch their music store, uh, the iTunes store, and they saw that technology and uh, they didn't screw around. Uh, Jobs said, well, I got to have that uh, and worked a deal with Bezos. So they paid him a million bucks for the right to use one-click ordering in their music store. Uh, and uh, that's been there ever since. We know how well iTunes worked out. Right. So, uh, I mean, you know, when you, uh, when anybody, one of us says, well, that's not really much effort. I think you have to look at two of the most intuitive business people ever, uh, Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, and say for them, one tiny little click uh, was sufficient effort to spend millions of dollars on, uh, and then we need that to color our own uh, actions. 
Yeah, it's a great, great point and a couple of great case studies. In fact, I can tell you that I am a strong utilizer of the one-click purchase. I bought your book, Friction, with one click, right, in Amazon, right? Friction, right? Um, so, so ironically, <laughs> I, <laughs> I use the principles to reduce the friction to buy friction. And, right, and for, for anybody who wants that experience, I would encourage them to try it out on uh, the book. You just go to the book page and see if that little one-click button works for you, and you'll see how little friction there is. <laughs> there, that's right. That's right. That, that, that's fantastic. And, um, and I think as, as I read through your book, I found it, I kept going back and forth zigzagging between being fascinated as a, as a business person, being fascinated by the concepts of friction within my own business here running Brain Trust, uh, but also being fascinated by the, the, the more macro view of different industries and how so many of them are impeded by friction. And that, that got me to thinking as I read through chapter three, the transportation disruption. Now, I didn't really know Garrett Camp and Travis Kalanick's story. I didn't, I didn't really know that much about it. I'd heard kind of on the periphery their story. Uh, maybe walk the listeners through a little bit about how they turned an industry up on its head, on its head, which is still being turned on its head as we speak. Right. Well, I guess maybe even to set the stage before that, uh, I'll, you know, I've been riding in taxis for most of my life, uh, off and on, uh, and I would say that for uh, most of that time. Uh, neither I nor most people saw all the friction that was inherent in the taxi process from calling uh, a ride in advance when you say you had a trip to the airport scheduled uh, to trying to hail one on a busy street uh, in, when it's raining uh, to uh, paying at the end to explain to the driver uh, where you're trying to go, where perhaps uh, the, you don't share a common language, or at least as natives. Uh, and, you know, there, uh, but we just sort of treated that as, okay, well, this is a normal taxi rider, unless it went really badly awry, like, you know, we couldn't hail a cab for an hour or right. uh, the cab went to totally the wrong place. You can think of that as being really a high friction process. Well, uh, uh, the founders of Uber were trying to get a, actually, uh, a limo ride, a black car. Uh, so this is sort of a first world problem, to be sure, <laughs> and couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get one uh, and decided to create uh, uh, after seeing how frustrating it was, I said, oh, we could probably do something better than that. So they started to create a, uh, a black car service uh, that would allow easier hailing of these rather you know, expensive but very nice rides. Uh, and then at some point, the light bulb went off and they saw, wow, hey, uh, that's pretty limited market compared to uh, global uh, transportation from point to point, uh, which is typically served by taxi cabs and buses and such. Right. Uh, and so they decided to... Uh, open up the process and uh, take on the taxi service. Uh, and they really looked at every element of the process to see where they could make it easier for the customer. Uh, and uh, like Jeff Bezos, uh, they and ultimately uh, Kalanick ended up being the driver of this effort, uh, focused uh, practically, if you want to say, uh, ruthlessly, relentlessly on uh, how things could be made easier for the customer. Uh, and trying to eliminate every little possible variable, every little bit of effort. And so as a result now, uh, when you uh, need a ride, you, know, you can dial up, uh, you can open up the Uber app, but you see how far away uh, the closest cars are. You type in your destination. It tells you how much the ride is going to cost, eliminating that uncertainty friction of, uh, wow, what if uh, this is going to cost way more than I expect? Uh, it, uh, and you can actually see the uh, how far away your ride is to you. Unlike a taxi where, you know, uh, you're trying to get to the airport, 
uh, it's already two minutes past when they said your taxi was going to be there. You're starting to wonder, okay, you know, is he really coming? Do they forget about me? Is he just around the corner? Uh, and that creates really a lot of stress and uncertainty if you've got to be someplace important. Uh, and Uber pretty much eliminates that because you can see what's going on. Uh, you can even communicate with the driver, say, hey, uh, he's, he appears to be hung up two blocks from here. What's going on? Uh, uh, you know, so uh, they eliminate uh, that. They eliminate the whole hassle of trying to explain to the driver where you're, where you're going. If you've ever had a driver take you to the wrong Marriott Hotel in a city that's got a dozen Marriott hotels, uh, uh, you know, uh, it eliminates that part of the process. Uh, it's, and, of course, payment. Uh, that's the other thing, particularly in uh, traveling internationally. Uh, oftentimes, you have to try and find a cab that takes, takes credit cards because you don't have any local currency. Uh, other times, you just get in a cab, assuming that they will, or because it says they take credit cards, and then the driver tries to explain that they don't. Uh, or even if they do, they've got to reach under the seat and get a machine out and establish an internet connection. And, you know, it can take uh, two, three, four minutes at the end of your ride uh, that's wasting both your time and the driver's time just to accomplish payment. And, and then there's the tipping thing where, oh, gee, you don't have uh, change or uh, you can't figure out how to do that in, in their, on their machine. It's, it's really, uh, you know, Uber fixed all that. And that's why uh, they pretty much took over the world so quickly they took a rather unorthodox approach of just sort of blitzkrieging into cities around the world uh, uh, because they knew that their customer experience was so much better uh, that their own customers would defend them when right. governments uh, said, hey, no, you can't do that because that's hurting our taxi uh, people who are paying us uh, to be licensed taxi drivers. Uh, and uh, it, by and large, it worked. It wasn't a perfect system. They created a lot of um, uh, issues along the way in some places. But uh, now I think the important thing to realize, though, Jeff, is that uh, Uber's innovation uh, did not change the basic service or product at all. You know, people think of innovation as saying, well, a new product, uh, you know, a brand new service that people don't know they need. Uh, they did nothing to innovate uh, in that part of it. Right. You were getting, getting into a car uh, at a hotel and going to an airport or, yep. you know, from point A to point B. But what they did was they made the customer experience so much better uh, that it revolutionized that industry and it gave them, uh, you know, a massive competitive advantage. And of course, uh, they achieved a unicorn status and massive valuation pretty quickly. Now, you know, how this is going to play out in the long run, we don't know, but clearly people want that kind of service. And so for all these folks who are trying to innovate in their business, you know, new products are great. New product features uh, are great. But uh, sometimes just the way you deliver that product or service uh, can make a huge difference. Yeah, isn't that amazing, though? And I, when I thought about that story through the lens of friction, and what I love, again, about your book is that it causes you to rethink and look at things through as you, as you open in your book with the, the goggles, with the friction goggles. When you look at the friction goggles that, that they must have looked at, at every point of that journey when person A is just trying to get to location B and how many different points of friction that we don't even think about that were actual points of friction to us, the psychology behind that and then them removing that and talk about self-preservation. Now, what happens is I can't remember the last time and I travel nearly weekly to speak somewhere um, or work with a client somewhere that I haven't taken an Uber or a Lyft, right? Because they have now earned my trust in I will pay a premium for the convenience of that assurity because that right yeah I mean they they got their start uh, by being cheaper in many cases 
And of course, in some uh, locations, they are cheaper because uh, the taxi drivers are uh, dishonest. But, right. uh, you know, it's not even a price thing so much. You know, given the choice between a highly predictable Uber ride and a much more variable taxi ride at the same price, you know, I think uh, I would certainly choose Uber or Lyft just like you do. You're talking about friction goggles. Uh, these are what friction goggles uh, look like. And by the end of this session here, Jeff, I guarantee uh, all of the people in our audience will have their own set of goggles. Not real ones, but metaphorical ones. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, and well, there, there's actually some neuroscience behind that. Uh, uh, our brains have what's called our reticular activating system, RAS, uh, that is a filter that screens out stuff that we don't need to pay attention to. So if you wanted to cross a street, uh, cross a street in Times Square, your RAS would only let through, say, oncoming cars, uh, the pedestrians right around you, and the crosswalk indicator. Uh, everything else would screen out so that your brain can make a relatively simple decision as to whether it's safe to walk or not. Uh, and uh, the problem is that filters out a lot of stuff, even stuff that might be important to us, but it hasn't been trained to look for that. Now, I think probably our uh, audience has had their own RAS experience if they've ever bought a new car. And like a week or two after that, suddenly they start seeing uh, their car everywhere. Uh, yep. It's like, wow, they say, I never saw these before. Where these all come from? Uh, the reason they never saw them before wasn't because they weren't there. It's because now their RAS views what their car looks like as something important because you're often looking for it in a parking lot or something. So it lets those images through to their brain and they're seeing them. And uh, what I found is uh, certainly reading the book will give people friction goggles, but uh, uh, often uh, just one of my uh, 45, 50 minute keynotes or a short training session will uh, equip people in the audience to keep start seeing friction when they didn't before. And I've even had an experience at conferences where I've been around for a day or two. Uh, and the next day, uh, people are standing in the lunch line, uh, pointing at stuff saying friction uh, uh, because they're, uh, they now have their metaphorical goggles. So hopefully between uh, you and me, Jeff, we will equip everyone with friction goggles. I love it. I love it. And I think that's everyone's goal, right, is to, is, to, is to do things in a more efficient way. We just don't always know where to look and then what to do about it and how to see those and spot those. So this is helpful. Now, you gave the great example of walking through Times Square and the RAS system uh, activating in our brain. That's a really good bridge over to one of the other chapters I loved. It was chapter six in your book with decision friction around choice paralysis. And that's the opposite of, right, when the RAS really focuses in only on what it needs. And what happens sometimes when you – through external sources that are getting an overload of potential options that your RAS is not filtered, you can end up with choice paralysis. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, our, our brains get uh, tired and stymied pretty easily uh, when they have to exert effort. Uh, one of Kahneman's findings, we talked briefly about Kahneman earlier, uh, was that uh, we have two ways of thinking, system one and system two. And uh, system one is that sort of fast, intuitive, rule-based decision-making. And system two is uh, that effortful, rational, logical, grind-through-a-thinking process. And he found that people do not like to be in System 2. They want to stay in System 1 where it's nice and simple. You know, if you're in the supermarket and you're confronted with uh, a shampoo aisle full of, uh, you know, 500 different shampoos and uh, different flavors and such, uh, instead of uh, being frozen there for an hour trying to analyze them, you grab the one that you bought last time because it worked fine or you grab the one that appears to be on sale at that moment because you really don't care and it's cheap. Uh, and that's system one in action. When you decide, wow, I've got this uh, 
uh, problem that I'm trying to solve because my hair is too oily or something, and you start reading labels and looking at the ingredients and such, then you're in system two. But we cannot devote that kind of energy to most decisions, and our brains don't want to devote that kind of energy. Right. Uh, so there's uh, been research uh, for years showing that uh, when people have too many choices, they are less likely to make a decision. In fact, uh, uh, Barry Schwartz wrote an entire great book about it called The Paradox of Choice. Uh, that, uh, and there was work done at Columbia University on jams where people, given a choice of three jams, bought more frequently or more product than when they had a choice of 24 jams, even though you would expect that people who wanted something special might find it if there was a greater selection. Instead, the greater selection reduced the number purchased. And so, uh, you know, in general, it's uh, to reduce that decision friction, uh, there's a few things you can do. First of all, is to eliminate unnecessary decisions. Uh, if you can avoid giving a customer too many choices or having them select something, uh, then do that because every time you make them uh, make that choice, it's, it's effortful and it's going to slow them down and reduce the chance that they will get 100% through your process. Um, now, uh, even just having too many products or product variations uh, can be an issue. Uh, and although I would say that there is a strategy for dealing with that, if you need to have many product variations, uh, then you need to guide customers. And Amazon is a good example of that because Amazon obviously has a tremendous amount of variation. Uh, I mean, they, they have so many choices. If you search for anything from, uh, you know, socks to uh, uh, music players or you know, whatever you want, uh, Bluetooth speakers, you will find choice after choice after choice there, and it can be baffling. Uh, but the way they help you through that uh, is by providing lots of different cues. Uh, they let you choose uh, uh, style variables. They let you choose price ranges. They let you choose different things that are important to your particular situation. Uh, and so that reduces the number of choices. And then as you start to narrow it, they give you other cues. Uh, they show you, they label products as bestseller, for example, Amazon right. bestseller, uh, or most popular. Uh, they give you cues that, uh, fall under the category of social proof. Uh, one of our basic influence principles from Cialdini, when they show that this product has 500 reviews and they are uh, 4.8 stars. Uh, you know, when you look at that, uh, that will immediately tell you, okay, a lot of other people really like this product and that it's a safe product for me to buy. And that's how Amazon manages to sell a whole lot of stuff uh, despite having infinite choice. But uh, I'm sure uh, we've all been on that website or in that app where we search for a product and we got this big pile of choices that met the criteria that we put in. Uh, like maybe on an apparel site, we're looking for a polo shirt and we see polo shirt after polo shirt and really have no good mechanism uh, for determining which one might be best for our needs. And so we just end up giving up and going someplace else. Right, or delaying the decision even right, more. Exactly, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, right? yeah if, if, when it's, when it's uh, more we have to work, uh, the more likely we are to do nothing. You know, uh, in e-commerce in particular, uh, every year uh, there are like something like $4.6 trillion of worth of merchandise abandoned in e-commerce shopping carts uh, where companies spent tons of money trying to, uh, first of all, get people to their website with pay-per-click ads, with SEO, with content marketing, with social media and social media marketing. Uh, they... Uh, invested in web design and uh, product uh, choice and choices and so on to get people to uh, 
look, understand the product line and choose a product. And they got them almost across the finish line, only to have them leave at the last minute. Uh, and if you look uh, at the reason for that waste, most of it, not all of it, but most of it is frictional in nature. Uh, it was a complicated checkout process. It was a requirement that you have to set up an account uh, to check out, to buy an item versus checking out as a guest. There, uh, there might be surprises at the end or hidden charges that could have been disclosed up front and eliminated that uh, element of friction. All of this stuff uh, goes into uh, why people get that far uh, but don't get across. So if you look at the way Amazon does it, they uh, make everything very, very clear. All the information is there up front. Usually you can buy with one click. Even if you go through their checkout process, there's never any uncertainty as you go forward. Uh, there, if there's a continue button, uh, they may tell you, uh, you'll have a chance to review your order before it's placed. Uh, that's another thing. I've, I've frequently been on sites where there's a continue button, either on an e-commerce site or some other kind of site. And I can't quite figure out if I click that button, am I committed to this thing right, or not? Right. Uh, and so I hesitate and often leave at that point. So, you know, if uh, you can take all of that uh, out of the process, you can avoid, uh, you know, some of these really common mistakes. And uh, there's so much friction in e-commerce, even in search. Uh, I just read an article the other day about the website Etsy. Etsy is another uh, website that has a lot of stuff on it. It's the craft site uh, that's yep. uh, used by a lot of people who create um, like art items and craft items and such. And uh, their big breakthrough in the last year was to create a site search function that actually worked. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, so that uh, I mean, I mean, it, there was a, a search function before, but it's amazing to me how uh, many even big brand websites have terrible search functions where you're looking for a product and you cannot find it uh, efficiently using their search. Not too long ago, I was on. I was looking for something called uh, puck lights, which are like little under-counter disc lights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was looking for warm white puck lights because that was the color temperature that I was looking for. Uh, and I compared my experience at Lowe's, Home Depot, and at Amazon. Um, at uh, uh, Lowe's, uh, I well, I guess to start with, at Home Depot, I started typing warm white, and pretty soon I got uh, just with those two words, they started suggesting lighting products. Um, Google is great at suggesting stuff that you can type in one character and Google's trying to guess right. using AI and machine learning what you want. And a lot of times you can get three characters in and you, you know, they know what you want. Uh, uh, and you can do it with, can find it with one click and then maybe not even have to click through again. But, uh, you know, so Home Depot was pretty accurately guessing what I wanted. And when I actually uh, searched for that whole string, the products that I found were all relevant. Uh, at Lowe's, uh, you know, very comparable retailer, um, fine-looking website. Uh, uh, there, I typed in warm white, and I was getting white towel warmers as suggestions, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, it's, it's not bad, but their, uh, their AI was not as good. Uh, it didn't recognize that warm white, uh, those words in sequence, often denote a color of lighting. Right. Uh, and Amazon, too, totally recognized it. I, I typed in warm on Amazon, and they started suggesting a few lighting-type terms. So... Sounds like, Lowe's, sounds like Lowe's, if you're listening out there, any executives from Lowe's, you need to give Roger a call. Well, it, yeah, you know, uh, actually, uh, I, I compared the uh, annual reports for the two, uh, two big home improvement firms uh, from last year. Uh, and Home Depot's online sales, their e-commerce sales were up 28%, which is pretty pretty good year-on-year increase in an industry that's not growing at, at that high of a percent. 
Uh, Lowe's did not disclose that number, but they did disclose uh, that they were hiring thousands of software engineers. So uh, I think maybe uh, they've already figured that out. It's, it's just a case of uh, getting it to a point that's going to work. So your own internal AI comparator uh, was able to, to denote what that meant, right? So well, you well, talked I'm about... Guessing, I'm guessing. Yeah, when we were talking about uh, choice paralysis, it's interesting because we tell we work with a lot of large enterprise B two B sales teams, and we talk a lot about how the brain really likes to associate value when there's points of contrast. And in order to be able to demonstrate value, you've got to be able to demonstrate contrast. And I joke with a lot of the sales teams that our consultants do that they're so well educated on their products and the features and benefits of the next greatest product. And when the brain is under stress, it tends to always communicate from its highest level of training. And in a sales call with an important customer, right, your highest level of training is your products and the next best product and all the different features of the product. And I joke with the reps, is like, you go in and you just open up your code and go, I got watches. And you got them up and down both sides of, of each of the insides of your coat. And you look at your customers like, well, you've got long arms. I bet you I could get a watch from your wrist all the way to your shoulder. The problem here is, and it's exactly what you're talking about, is because the customer's brain can only take so much change at one time and it's starting to think about those. It can't make, it just it ejects from the process, right? Because the brain is the highest calorie consumptive organ in the body and it doesn't like to think that hard to demonstrate value. And so it'll just, that's why status quo, even in the B2B space, can sometimes be 50, 60, 70% of no decision with sales calls because the customer never actually sees enough value in the determination to make a decision. And a lot of that time is because the rep has inadvertently introduced more friction in the sales call than they needed to. Yeah. And you know, it's a natural instinct when, you know, a customer says, well, I'm not sure what I need. You know, I've got this issue, but this other issue is also important. Uh, The natural tendency is to say, look, we have a range of solutions uh, that have been proven to work across you know many different customer environments. Let me tell you what the this range of solutions is. And, I got watches. I got yeah, watches. Right? Yeah. You know, and the uh, it seems like you're being very helpful by informing the customer and you know providing that information about even the difference. Like this one uh, is better at this, but uh, you know, and so on. Uh, in fact, uh, there is research that shows that uh, customers are first pre- both prefer uh, and are more likely to make a decision. Uh, when what's called the prescriptive selling is used, where instead of saying, uh, we have these different things and trying to explain why uh, one might be better than the other and, uh, you know, the merits and demerits of each one, say, you know, if you can go to a customer and say, you know, other customers like you with your problem uh, have found this solution to be most effective, uh, that is uh, valued by the customer and they're more likely to make a decision. That doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't answer questions. And if the customer says, well, yeah, but I, this other thing is really important. You can't explain that. But uh, you have to resist that tendency, right. uh, that natural impulse to go in and uh, demonstrate your knowledge of the product line. And also, give because often the customer is asking, well, what, what all products do you have that might work for me? Uh, and, in, you know, instead of being totally responsive to that question, is trying to get at what the customer is really looking for, which is a solution. Hundred percent, and I think that you know, we could talk for days on this on this topic. But the reason that that happens a lot of times is because we understand our product far better than we understand our customer's problem, and so therefore we think, well, they know their problem, or that if they even have one, so let me just tell them everything that we do and let them pick, <laughs> right? Right. 
And then, then you know, RAS can't, there's so many things here, cognitive bias-wise, there's nothing to anchor to, there's no risk of loss of the cost of the, not solving the problem. There, there's so many things, right, that you and I know that come in, they create friction, both from a biological and a psychological process with that customer in that moment. So you're talking about being prescriptive in the approach by understanding the customer's problem and then presenting them a solution to that problem in a very concrete and tangible way. Exactly. And I'm going to take a little detour here, Jeff. Uh, as long as we're talking about uh, uh, training salespeople and uh, you know, how, how to best sell, uh, I think that uh, there is a fusion. We, we talked a lot about customer experience already, a customer experience at Amazon, customer experience at Uber, uh, and how these lessons can be applied. But what I've found is once businesses uh, and the people in those businesses start looking at the friction in their customer experience, they find that friction, also different kinds of friction in their own environments, in their employee experience. Yes. Uh, you know, when, when you start trying to hammer the friction out of how a customer places an order, uh, you find that the internal processes related to that order placement uh, or uh, to expense reporting or to uh, weekly sales reporting or whatever, uh, those are high friction processes. Uh, and you know, there's an uh, employee engagement crisis going on right now in this country. Absolutely. Uh, there are, uh, depending on which Gallup numbers you look at, uh, at least two-thirds and maybe as uh, high as uh, 80% or more of our employees are not actively engaged with their employer, and which means, uh, and a few of them are actively disengaged, like 15% are actually disengaged. You know, they're the ones that are probably uh, uh, have one foot out the door and are already starting to badmouth you. But right. the rest are just sort of putting in their time. They're not bad, but, uh, uh, you know, they are uh, working, doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, and they are unlikely to deliver that outstanding customer experience if they're just putting in their time. And also, if somebody comes along with a better offer, they are unlikely to remain loyal to the company because they're putting in their time. And particularly in this market where we've got pretty full employment, uh, you know, you want to have highly engaged employees that would be very difficult to pry away from your company. So uh, what uh, I talk about in the book is how uh, by looking not just to customer experience, but at employee experience, you can increase the engagement level of your own people uh, who will in turn deliver that better customer experience that uh, you're striving for and also uh, be more loyal to your company and uh, create a better environment and reduce turnover, reduce training costs. And so really a, one, a friction approach can be a win all the way around for the business. Yeah, that's fantastic, Roger. And I think if you take, again, I love, we'll just refer back to the, uh, to the BJ Fogg model. You just turn it inside, right? You do it as a mirror and say, what's causing our employees to be less motivated and what's making it harder for them to do their job? And then you do the friction evaluation on, on your internal staff and employees, not just the external sales process. And I think that's a recipe uh, for definite improved productivity overall. So well, as we start to raise our tray tables and seat backs up and begin to land the proverbial plane, I think it might be a good place to end is you, you talk about in chapter 10, habits and productivity. And for the listeners out there today, we have a wide range of different listeners. They're doing different roles and functions, both personally and professionally. What are just some individual ideas and thoughts you have for them to how they can drive change in their life for better improvement, whatever the case may be, professionally, personally? Give us some thoughts as we close. Sure. And uh, yeah, there, uh, this is not a philosophy that's unique to me. Uh, BJ Fogg has uh, been talking about it and writing about it for years. 
Uh, James Clear wrote an excellent book, Atomic Habits, that uh, dwells on this. Uh, and the uh, best thing you can do is if you are trying to uh, increase an activity, to develop a habit, is to make it easier. Uh, and so uh, that might mean if you're trying to run when you uh, get up every morning and you just find yourself, you know, get out of bed, and, eh, pretty hard to get yourself motivated. Uh, you know, where you're running close to sleep, put your uh, running shoes right by the side of your bed so you can practically step right into them. Uh, make sure that there's nothing between you and the uh, experience that you're trying to get. Where if you've got uh, to go hunting, especially if you've got to go like looking in drawers for your running clothes and such, uh, uh, then even that little bit of friction can make a difference. Uh, James Clear talks about uh, uh, if you want to work out on your way home from uh, work, then uh, be sure that your gym is on your way home. If you have to take a, um, a detour to get there, the longer that detour is, the more likely you are to say, ah, I don't have that much time today. I got out of work late and, and blow it off. Uh, and conversely, making things more difficult uh, works. Uh, uh, Art Markman here in Austin at the University of Texas um, wrote, uh, has, has written quite a lot about uh, smart habits. And he found that uh, his, his downfall, he's actually a, a very svelte guy right now, but he was not always svelte. Uh, uh, his downfall was Ben and Jerry's ice cream. You, you know those uh, uh, containers, they're pint containers, they're pretty good sized containers. Uh, they are not intended to be single serving. I think if you read the label, it's like three right. or four servings in one of those containers. But if you ever had the experience of starting one of those things with a spoon in your hand, you know you get about uh, halfway down and you realize, well, gee, there's not really that much left in here, and pretty soon the whole thing is gone. Right. Uh, and he found that the most effective strategy was not to buy it at the store because if he had to drive to the store to satisfy his craving, nine times out of 100, he would not do that. It was just too much friction. Uh, and even uh, smaller hacks, like uh, uh, if you're eating candy, if you have candy in the house, uh, put the candy on a high shelf in the closet. It's there. If you really want it, you can go get it. But chances are, if you're sitting watching TV or something, say, I'd like a piece of candy, it's not going not to be worth that effort. So, uh, in fact, there was a fascinating experiment done by some Yale researchers at Google's New York City office. Uh, Google, as at many of their offices, provides free food there. And they found that, surprise, people were gravitating to the unhealthy stuff. Uh, they were eating a lot of M&Ms. For some reason, uh, psychology researchers love M&Ms. I think because uh, they are pretty much interchangeable. You can count them. You can weigh them. Uh, compared to something like fudge that would be a lot more difficult to handle. Uh, so anyway, uh, what they did was uh, they moved the M&Ms from the front of the food display to the back, and they put them in an opaque uh, container so that they created just a little more friction. People knew they were there. Uh, they could reach over and get them, but they would have to reach over the healthy, say, dried fruit items uh, to get to the M&Ms. What they found was that uh, in a month, they reduced the M&M calorie consumption by several million calories in that office. Wow. Just that tiny little hack of moving it farther away. In fact, some research by Wansing and Cornell found the same thing. He, he put a bowl of M&Ms uh, close to uh, people, uh, and then they counted how many they consumed or weighed how many they consumed. Uh, just moving it a couple of feet farther away reduced consumption where people couldn't quite just reach and get it. They had to uh, stand up partway and reach over to get it. Uh, that uh, significantly reduce consumption. So even tiny little increases in friction will uh, end up uh, changing your habit. And so 
if you want it, want to do it, make it easy. If you don't want to do it, make it more difficult. Love it. Love it. So on an individual level, for those out there listening, introduce this, just to reiterate what Roger just said, if you want to stop doing something negative, some behavior, introduce more friction that causes you to not want to go ahead and go forward with that behavior. If you want to pick up a new habit, establish something positive in your life, find the ways to reduce those friction points that prevent you from actually doing it. And I think that's great from a personal level, from a professional level. It works on parenting. It works on probably relationships in general. So, um, well, listen, Roger, I really, really appreciate how much time you afforded myself and our audience today. Big fan of your work. And again, for those out there listening, uh, go to rogerdooley.com, buy the book Friction, and then go buy the book Brainfluence after that. For more information, go to neuroscienceMarketing.com. Um, big fan of yours, as I said, Roger, and look forward to, to seeing what happens with the next book as you continue to iterate how you take these complicated concepts of neuromarketing and put them in ways that anyone out there can understand. So thanks again. Well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate your having me on the show. Have a great day. You too. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.